every Christian has a testimony. And one of the things that all of our testimonies have in common is that we can all share the testimony of the Apostle Paul who wrote in the book of Galatians and the second chapter of the 20th verse. Paul was talking about uh, what he had before he came to know Christ and what he had since coming to know Christ. And he said, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, we read in the uh, book of Romans that as it speaks to us about this life that Paul talks about, the new life that he has with Christ in him, we know that in the book of Romans in the uh, sixth chapter, we read there several verses in the beginning of it, and it tells us that we had an old life and that we were buried with Christ by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too may rise with Christ and walk with him in newness of life. So what the Bible talks about over and over again is about how on the cross Jesus did something spectacular for us. He took my sin, he took your sin, and he took that upon himself. And in exchange, what he gave was he gave his righteousness to us. That's not a bad exchange. Everybody for that? You like that? I mean, he takes your sin... And you take his righteousness. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, you know, I no longer, but Christ. I don't know about you, but I like the version of myself after Christ better than the version of myself before Christ. And yet somehow I keep seeing this old person, this old man that I was before, cropping up. And I don't like that person. And I find that when the Bible talks about I have to be transformed by the renewing of my mind... The real work there is that I have to be reprogrammed in my thinking because, you see, it's I no longer, I no longer live. But it's Christ who is living in me. And John, when he wrote his first epistle, he was trying to explain this to people, help them to connect the dots. And he was saying to them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, you know, the one who says that he remains or abides in him will walk just as Jesus walked. Now that doesn't mean that just by us trying a whole lot harder we'll get her done. What it means is, is that we can acknowledge the fact that Jesus himself has actually come to live and reside inside us. And so I yield to him as Christ lives out his life in me. Now when we come to God's word this morning, what we find as we read the scripture is that there is something that I'd like for us to take away from Ephesians chapter 4, and it's the culmination of what Paul has been saying to us in this fourth chapter. You see, this entire chapter, what Paul has been arguing is that the inner transformation resulting from a saving encounter with the resurrected Christ is going to be manifested in us in our outward acts and in our Christ-like conduct. And so when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32... We understand that we are coming to God's Word to hear what He has to say to us. And this morning, the message that God brings to us is new life, new lifestyle. And so I want you to take God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to begin the reading at verse 25. And this is God's Word. 
Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You know, every time I stand to preach, I realize that the Word of God says that it is through the foolishness of preaching that men are saved. It's not because that I have something in addition to what we have just read that is going to magically transform someone's life. The reality is, is once we read the Word of God, we have the message. <laughs> this is the message. We've just read it. And so as we contemplate it, as we think on it, as we seek to apply it to our lives, let's join together in prayer for just a moment to acknowledge this is His Word. Father, thank you that there is no clearer word than that which you have already spoken to us and that which we have read, that we hold in our laps before us that will appear on the screen so that for those who are listening online, for those that are gathered together with us here this morning in this place, Father, I make it my prayer and ask you that you would keep me from saying anything I should not say but help me to say only what you once said this morning for the glory of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now, if you've been following along in Ephesians chapter 4, you know that there's a progression to Paul's teaching. And I want you to look in your Bible with me and notice that progression. If you go back several verses, you come to the verse, 24th verse, and what you see is that Paul begins by talking about things that we are supposed to put off or take off. And then he moves on from there, and he goes on and says in, uh, in verse 24, from verse 22 to verse 24, he says there are some things that we're supposed to put on. And we talked about those things last week. But then there's a, the progression continues because he goes on from putting off to putting on to now he talks to us about things that we're to put away. So there's this progression in Paul's teaching as he's talking to us about the new life. Now what I like to do is I like to think of what Paul has said to us just previously is that he's given us some general guidelines about how to live this new life, this new life that we have in Jesus Christ but now what he's going to do is he's going to go a step further and he's going to move on from generalities to specifics and he's going to talk about how the transforming power of Jesus Christ has the ability to change our behavior and affect various or different areas of our lives. 
Now there are seven traits, if you were paying attention as we were reading along there, that Paul shares with us that are listed as evidence of the new birth and this new lifestyle or new life that we have in Jesus Christ. First of all, he speaks of truthfulness in speech, verse 25. Look at it with me. Paul calls upon his Christian and brothers and sisters, and what does he say to him? He says, listen, I want you to put away lying. And he says, and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. John Stott observes about that passage that uh, it is uh, useless for us to concentrate on trying to avoid lies. That's of little benefit to us unless we also replace it with the active pursuit of truth. Jesus is the truth and Jesus speaks truth. But when he was talking about the devil with whom he was personally acquainted, Jesus himself said of the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, the devil doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. Whenever we speak truth, the Holy Spirit goes to work. Whenever we tell a lie, Satan goes to work. You read your Bible, you'll notice that in the early church, the first sin that was judged in the church, in the early church, Acts chapter 5, was the sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. The motive Paul gives for us telling the truth, in verse 25, we are members of one another. We're joined to Jesus and we're joined to each other. And earlier when Paul was talking about how we build up the church, he says we build up the church by truth, and we build up the church by speaking the truth. So Jesus says to us that God's people are to be known by their honesty, their reliability, that their words can be trusted, that they are truth when they speak them. There's a second character trait that gives evidence of the new birth and life in Christ, and that is the proper control and exercise of anger. When Paul exhorts his readers to express their anger in righteous ways and not sinfully, he apparently is calling on Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. But he only gives us part of it. He begins by saying, be angry and do not sin. I think it's instructive for us to hear what the entire fourth verse of Psalm 4 says because what David does is he gives us a great insight into this uh, character trait of the proper control and exercise of anger. The Christian Standard Bible says of Psalm 4, 4, Be angry and do not sin on your bed. Reflect in your heart and be still. I like what the NLT says, the New Living Translation says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Keep your mouth shut, the message says, and let your heart do the talking. Build your case before God and wait for His verdict. Now there's a word that Paul uses there in that fourth verse when he says, sit on your bed, reflect in your heart, and be still. Now that phrase right there, reflect in your heart, is the word to meditate. You know what it means to meditate? It means to sit yourself down and have a good talking to yourself. 
Now, David was someone who had a lot of reasons to be angry from time to time. And on occasion, you know, when somebody else is trying to kill you and they wrongfully accuse you of stuff, you know, you want to come to your own defense, you want to speak up and say, but, 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 wait a second. That's not true. Now, David's actions spoke louder than his words, and there was no truth to what was being said about him, but there were people who were in constant pursuit of him. And when we read the fourth psalm, what we have is we have David lying awake at night, probably making his bed in a cave where he's hiding from Saul and his men who are out to kill him. And what he's saying here in this fourth verse of the psalm is that, you know, I reflected in my heart. I had a good discussion with myself. You know, nighttime is a pretty good time where if you're angry, a lot of things can come bubble up to the surface and you can start making up a lot of stuff in your head, right? Your mind starts playing tricks with you about how people are out to get you and things that were once not so hard because you were getting them out in the open. Now you're starting to think about them and they're really working on you. There's a big difference between brooding and lying in bed and meditating And so what Paul adds here is he pulls out of this verse and he says, you got to put a time limitation on it. And the time limitation is don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And apparently there's a... There's a motive something that should drive us to want to do that. Because he says if we fail to do that, what we do is we give the enemy an opportunity, the devil an opportunity to come in and cause us to sin. Brian Bill says correctly, Sometimes we spend too much time trying to figure out ways to keep the sun from going down than trying to deal with the problem at hand. I didn't realize the truth of what he was saying there until my life group that meets in our home on Monday evenings, um, I don't know, anywhere from, you know, we can have 15 one night and some nights, uh, you know, it's kind of like church. Some nights you just kind of bumper to bumper, you know, you're bringing in the chairs from everywhere. And in our life group, just several months ago, we were having a conversation about marriage relationships and we were talking about, you know, what's healthy and what's unhealthy. And I don't, I don't, anybody here go through pre-marriage counseling? Okay. Some of you... Just pros didn't need it. And uh, a lot of us, like myself, went through it. And the problem with premarital counseling is you don't know when you really need to be paying attention. And you find out after your marriage, man, I should have been paying closer attention right then. Well, you know, one of those things in premarriage counseling that they always talk about is how to deal with conflict. And this scripture frequently is shared in pre-marriage counseling, uh, in Christian counseling, when it talks about how to deal with your anger before going to bed. Well, one of the older, more mature married ladies in our group quoted this verse and made reference to that counseling session, and I love what she had to say. 
She said, you know, my husband and I never let the sun go down on our anger, but we have stayed up all night a few times. (laughs) Don't give the devil an opportunity, he says in that 27th verse. Dad was reading the story of Adam and Eve in the garden to his young children. And after he finished reading the story, he asked the children, he says, what did you get from the story? And his young son blurted out, don't play with snakes! Friends, that's a good insight. As Christians... We don't need to play with the snake. We don't need to give Satan a base of operation in our lives. And as that sage theologian Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith show used to say, we got to nip it in the bud. A second character trait of those who have exchanged their life for the life of Christ is that they give evidence of the new birth and life in Christ. A third character trait is the display of personal sacrifice and unselfishness. Reading on in verse 28, look at it with me, verse 28. It talks about do not steal, that's what it says. Now you need to understand that in the times of Paul, one-fourth of the world, one-fourth of the world in biblical times, in New Testament times, were slaves. And so Paul makes this statement here in this 28th verse, and we understand that many of these slaves were not well cared for. Oftentimes many of these slaves uh, uh, found themselves always in need. And to compound their problem is they virtually had no protection under law of any kind. And animals were oftentimes treated better than the slaves were. And so we're not surprised that when Paul is writing to this young pastor, Titus, and he starts to speak to him, he talks about some of these slaves who now have come to faith in Christ. And he says, let not these Christians who have come to faith in Christ steal, but let them be faithful to their masters. But when we're reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, we find that Paul is not addressing himself here principally or even primarily to slaves, but rather he's talking to people who are gainfully employed. People who can make a living with their own hands. And he's talking to these people about not stealing any longer. And he says, now that you can work with your own hands, steal no longer, but work with your own hands And as God has given you the ability and God has given you the opportunity, do not steal. Once again, we notice that Paul adds motivation to the admonition. Earlier, what did we see? Earlier we saw that he said, don't uh, speak the truth. Why? Because we're members of one another. We're joined to each other. We're kinfolk. Secondly, he says we we should deal with our anger because we don't want to give the devil an opportunity. That's a motivation, right? And now notice here, he gives another motivation along with the admonition. He says this third time, he says to us, he says, I don't want you to steal, I want you to do honest work and do it with your own hands. But look what he says. 
so that you may have something to share with those who are in need. Having your expense account is stealing. Looking on someone else's paper and stealing answers off their paper is stealing. Fudging on your income tax return is stealing. Failing to return the tithe, Malachi 3 says, is stealing. We don't talk a lot about tithing anymore. You know, we come to Jesus, and what we like to talk about is we like to talk about grace. Well, we don't tithe out of obligation. A tithe is simply our way of acknowledging to God, God, you own it all. I mean, you're entitled to it all, but this is my first act of giving to you because in giving to you, what it does is it it keeps me from getting sticky fingers of thinking this is mine. Listen, friends, we don't own anything. Nothing belongs to us. And so when Paul is speaking to these Christians about not stealing, we can think of a lot of ways of somebody, you know, taking an extra piece of fruit or a piece of candy at the grocery store and slipping it into their pocket and going by the cashier without paying for it. I mean, those are the kinds of things that come to our minds. But listen, it gets a little bit more personal than that. You realize actually in the Old Testament that when the Jews gave, they actually gave more than 17% of their income to the Lord because there were all kinds of special offerings throughout the year that they gave in addition to the tithe. You've heard of the 80-20 principle? Eighty-twenty principle in church says 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That actually is not true. It's not true of anything related to the church today. What we have in the church today is we still have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work and 20% of the people doing 80% of the giving, but we only have 30% of the people giving the other 20%. This is sad to say, and I have not looked at the giving records here lately, but it's sad to say that 50% of the people who come to today's churches don't give anything. They don't serve anywhere. They don't participate in any way beyond what they get for themselves on Sunday. They come with their report card and say, hey, did he finish on time? That's their check mark. You see... This is, this is very personal. I mean, we would expect that God would get all up in our business, wouldn't we? We'd expect that he would know what's going on in our lives and how things operate at home. Now, when I read the verse, here's what I took away from it. I, I started to think, I said, now, if I was writing the verse, how would I end this? What, what, what would I say? I would think as a motivation, what Paul might have said is, here's your motivation. 
work and work hard with your hands so that you have enough not to steal. You don't have to steal. You've got enough for yourself. But that's not what he says. He says that our motivation is we work so that we may share with others who are in need. Folks, the antidote for taking is giving. There's a fourth character trait that he mentions, and the fourth character trait that he mentions is purity in speech. In verse 29, the word that is translated uh, let no foul language come out of your mouth. That word foul that is translated there can also be tra- uh, translated corrupt or unwholesome. If you do a word study on it, you know that Jesus used this same word when he was speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. And what Jesus said there in Matthew 7, verses 17 and 18, is he was talking about good fruit and bad fruit. And he said, you know, you don't get good fruit from a bad tree and you don't get bad fruit from a good tree. He says, so be sure you look at the root system because a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And when he uses that word bad fruit, he's using this same word that Paul uses to describe unwholesome talk. Becoming a Christian, Paul says, changes a person's speech. Speech controlled by the new nature is going to exhibit three characteristics. If you look at the verse, notice it. It edifies or it builds up. It's appropriate. It has a redemptive effect on those who hear it. I don't know if you're like me, but I wish my mouth were installed with a zipper. Anybody here with me? And then I just occasionally unzip it to say something, but most of the time I leave it closed up, zipped up tight. So Paul, when he's speaking to these people, he's talking about a change of speech, and uh, looking at a commentary, I noticed that one of the commentators said that he's not just talking here about those things that, uh, you know, are un unwholesome in the way of being obscene vulgarity but what he's talking about here is he's he's talking about any comments that we make that are demeaning or make another person look bad in the eyes of other people or we bring down to a certain level but boy oh boy when I started looking in the mirror and I started thinking about my home life and the home life of my children The words of William Temple came to mind. William Temple said, The most influential of all educational factors is the conversation in a child's home. Let me say that again. The most influential of all educational factors is the conversation in a child's home. You ever put pictures, kids bring home stuff from church or from school, and you got those magnets and you put it on the refrigerator? Man, I wish I had that one, like, you know, magnetized to my brain. 
next time you're tempted to fly off in a rage at home in front of the kids or to your spouse or, you know, your grandchildren or whatever, think about that. The greatest influence on the language of our children is learned in our home. So Paul speaks about purity in speech. A fifth characteristic or fifth character trait that gives evidence of the new birth and life in Christ is cooperation with and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Look at it, verse 30. Believers are warned what? Just a very simple statement. Grieve God, do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. Now we have a new nature at work in us and that new nature that's in work in us. Remember, my old life without Christ died. I was raised by the power of God to new life. The new power that raised me is the Holy Spirit of God that came to dwell inside me. So I have this power that is at work in me that I am yielding to constantly as I live my life. But when Paul speaks about this power at work in us, the presence of the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, what he says here is that God's Holy Spirit, and remember it's the Holy Spirit that inspired the Scriptures. Paul using his own historical setting, Paul using his language of every day, all those things that are familiar to him, he's employing all those things, but the thoughts that he's being given to write down are being given to him by the Holy Spirit. And what does he say about the Holy Spirit? He says the Holy Spirit has feelings. What would you think if somebody came up and tapped you on the shoulder and said, excuse me, you're hurting God's feelings? That's what Paul is saying. Nobody wants to hurt God's feelings. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And what are some of those sins that grieve God's Spirit? Whenever unity in the body of Christ is disrupted by things that we say and things that we do, the Spirit of God is grieved. And that Spirit of God who is grieved, is grieved because why? He has sealed us for the day of redemption. But notice he says to us sixthly that a sixth character trait that gives evidence of the new life and our new lifestyle is a proper attitude. Verse 31 so right after he has warned us about not grieving the Holy Spirit, what he goes into is he goes in and lists out six forms of sin that are totally incompatible with the Christian life, and they've got to be removed from our mode of operation. And each of these, I notice, has to do or is connected with our speech in one way or another. And I wanted to offer some definitions here for you to consider as you look at these words, bitterness, is a spirit of resentment that refuses to be reconciled. Anger, a temporary outburst of temper. Wrath, a subtle, deep-flowing, persistent antagonism against someone. 
shouting, loud expressions of grievance, clamor, brawling. <laughs> or if you just want to put this in parentheses, road rage. Slander is speaking evil of others and of God. To do away with all malice. And so he comes to the end of it, and it's not like he's exhausted all the words, but he says, doing away with all malice, and this becomes a general term that wraps everything together in one bundle. And this word malice means for us any evil word or act against another. And really, when you think about it, he says, this is the root cause of all of these things that I've mentioned. These are the sins that invite Satan to go to work in our lives, to influence us, to grieve the Spirit of God, to harm the church, and to even hurt ourselves. And what does he say? Let all of these things be removed, put away from you. That means to pick it up and carry it away and dispose of it. I had this picture in my mind. We've got this one garage uh, door that uh, leaves uh, from our entryway hall into our kitchen that goes directly into our garage. This is our primary way of access into our house. Now, the Monday night group, they come in through the front door, okay? But if it's raining really hard, we throw the garage door up and let them just run straight in through the garage to that door because it's just easier than staying on the porch and getting wet. But you can imagine with all the foot traffic that comes in through that door, where do you think gets the dirtiest in our house? That spot right there. The word that Paul is using here and the thing that he's saying here is get out the whisk broom, get out the vacuum, collect all these things, and throw them away. A seventh character trait that gives evidence of the new life and our new lifestyle is forgiving one another. And we read this this morning. The Greek word that is used here by Paul is the word charizomai. And this word implies not only forgiving, you recognize in that word charizomai, the word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. So this Greek word charizomai not only means forgiving, but doing so with a gracious attitude. The only people who have trouble forgiving each other are the people who have in their mind that they're never going to need to be forgiven anything. You see, my old life died, and my new life with Jesus is one that is characterized by the characteristics of Christ. So this is not a matter of me working harder. This is a matter of my mind being renewed so that I no longer see myself making choices on my own, but I see Jesus Christ living out his life using my body as the instrument through which he lives his life. In fact, that's exactly what's intended when it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to God. 
And so what he says here, he says, I want you to understand something. When we forgive, we don't forgive for, for the sake of others. He said, we don't even get, forgive for the sake of ourselves, even though there's a blessing that does come from that. He says the reason why we forgive is because the sake of Jesus. You ever feel like somebody needs to earn your forgiveness? You know, maybe if they turn a corner and they come back around, they earn my forgiveness. Boy, here's what we've forgotten. We don't earn forgiveness. When you give forgiveness to someone else, it's not because they have earned it. When we give forgiveness to somebody else, we give it to them because it's already been paid for. Jesus already paid for it. park ranger reported that the only animal he had observed that the grizzly bear will allow to share his meal is the skunk. In Yellowstone Park there's a large amount of trash that is disposed of and it becomes a place that is a great attraction to Grizzly bears are looking for an easy meal. They know where they can find one. The park ranger, Yellowstone National Park, observed the grizzly bear was eating his meal. And there was the skunk chowing down right beside him. Now you know this. The grizzly bear is the fiercest animal in the western United States. It could whip just about any other animal out there. No doubt, the grizzly bear kind of resented the whole fact that the skunk was crashing his party. You know, just pulled up a chair and helping himself. No doubt, the grizzly bear knew he could take the skunk out, no problem. No doubt that the grizzly bear was pretty hacked off about the whole scenario, but the grizzly bear didn't do anything to the skunk. Why? Because the grizzly bear knew the high cost of getting even. Friends, a, a life in Christ is the exchange life. It's not me trying to do my best for God. It's me realizing that not maybe so, but absolutely so, my old life was buried and died and put into a grave. And by the supernatural power of God, the same power that raised Jesus to life has raised me to new life.
And we come to that place where having read the Word of God and having heard what God says to us, I want to ask you this question. Are you happy with your life the way it is now? Because if you're happy with your life the way it is now, you probably don't feel a need for Jesus. But if you would say, you know, I'm really not satisfied with the life I have now. I want something different. then that's why Jesus came. He came so that we would not be lost in our sin forever and separated from God and eternally unhappy. But he came so that we might have forgiveness through his blood shed on the cross for us and through our trust in him and through our repentance from sin and our turning to Jesus. He says, look, I love you. I gave my life for you. Ask me to come in, and I will. You know, maybe that's a prayer that somebody here this morning needs to make. That's a pretty big room. There are a lot of people listening online who are not in this room. And if that describes you today, I want you simply to bow your head and your heart before God and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself. I know I made a mess of my life, and I thank you, Jesus, that you are holy. You are God's son. You came because you love me. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive my sin. I turn from my sin to you, and I put my trust in you, Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for coming in and saving me from my sin. And now, Lord Jesus... Let me surrender my life to you and acknowledge that you are living in me and through me. And help me never to be ashamed to tell others that I know you. You may have made that your prayer this morning. If so, please let us know. Contact us. Tell us we're going to have this altar open here at the front. And this morning I want to invite you to come and pray. And I'm going to be standing here at the front this morning. You made it your decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I want to invite you to come and tell somebody about it. Because once you trust Jesus, the first thing the devil will try to do is he'll try to get you, you know, to say, hey, you didn't really mean that. That was not something you intended to do. You'll go back on that decision. You know, it's just something about telling somebody about your decision to trust Christ that helps solidify that decision before God and before others. In fact, Jesus says if we don't confess our faith in Jesus before others, then Jesus says, I'll not confess you before my Father in heaven. Help me not to be ashamed of Jesus. This morning as we come and we stand right now together, would you come, maybe kneel here at the altar, or maybe just to say, hey, pastor, today I trusted Jesus as my Savior. As we stand and we sing, Tom.